My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. So I'm delighted to be welcoming to this edition of Bridges to the Future, Roman Krisnarik. Have I got it right, Roman? You got it absolutely right. You say every letter without fear. <laughs> I have to admit this, even though I know you, I did go back online and just check the pronunciation. Anyway, I know you as a writer, a public intellectual, but describe yourself to our listeners, Roman. I've always found it hard to describe what word to use for myself. At the moment, I use public philosopher. In other words, someone who tries to think about big ideas that change our lives, but not in a sort of narrow academic sense and not just about the individual, but what kind of ideas do we need in society to shift it towards greater well-being, to deal with the welfare of people alive today and in future generations. So um, I would say that being a public philosopher is what drives what I do, what I write, how I think. Many, many years ago, when I ran IPPR, we had a massive event with the world's press and everything to launch a report that was long awaited and very controversial. And I got an intern to do the slide, and I think they had made uncritical use of the spell checker. So the first slide went up, live TV this was, and it said daft recommendations of the IPPR report on pubic private partnerships. So <laughs> ju just a tip there, Roman, make sure you don't find yourself speaking at Davos and put the slide up that says... Roman Krisnarik, pubic intellectual. Thank you for that. Very useful information. <laughs> <laughs> so there would be no one better than you, Roman, to be the first in a slight change in our emphasis on this podcast. So we're no longer asking people simply to speculate on COVID-19, its effects and its consequences, but let's get a bit more specific. Let's get a bit more concrete, because I think now is the time for us to really ask about what we might do differently. So we've changed our question. I'm no longer going to ask you, like I've asked all of my other guests, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after COVID-19? I'm going to ask you a slightly different question, and that's this. Roman Krisnarik, after the COVID pandemic, what's your big idea? Well, that's a very big question. And certainly the way I think about it, the big idea for me is another question in response. And that question is this, how can we be good ancestors? I really think exploring that question is the big idea for the 21st century. And that concept of the good ancestor is not mine. I first came across it in the writings of the great immunologist Jonas Salk, who with his team in 1955 discovered the polio vaccine. But later in life, particularly in the 1970s, he started thinking about, well, how are we going to deal with the long-term challenges of our age, the threat of nuclear war or our destruction of the natural world? And he said, the great question of our time was, you know, how can we be good ancestors? How are we going to be remembered well by future generations? And I think that question is absolutely central for today. I mean, Salk believed that we could only answer that question about how to be a good ancestor by expanding our time horizons. So 
thinking not on a scale of seconds and minutes and hours, but on a scale of decades and centuries and millennia. And I think that kind of way of thinking long term and that desire to expand our temporal horizons in our public institutions, in private life, really makes sense in this post-COVID world that we are gradually moving into because we know that in many ways, COVID-19 was a colossal failure of long-term thinking and planning. We know that those countries that had long-term plans in place for dealing with epidemics like Taiwan have dealt with the virus much more effectively than places like the United States, where they disbanded the National Security Council's pandemic unit in 2018. You know, that's certainly not long-term planning. That's deadly short-termism. But we also know that pandemics in general are not the only threats on the horizon. We face threats from the climate crisis. We face threats from technology, like threats from, for example, AI-controlled lethal autonomous weapons. And then maybe there are genetically engineered pandemics on the horizon. So I think if you get our teeth into that question of how to be a good ancestor, we're actually going to be on the way to dealing with the 21st century age of emergency and the need to build resilience. Now, Roman, I've been reading the book, and I want to tell you a little journey I went on with it, which is that when I started reading, I mean, I, you know, I love your work, you write beautifully. But after a few pages, I kind of thought, mm, I'm not sure about this, you know, because I, I get a bit tired of kind of one concept books, you know, here's a big concept, and I'm going to spend 250 pages banging away at this big concept. And those books make me kind of feel I'm being forced to think something. And I wonder whether it's really worthwhile. But what is fantastic about your book is that the more I got into it, I realised how rich this idea of long-term thinking it is. It isn't a simply a kind of, you know, pious hope that people think of other people, think of the long-term challenge, our kind of mental frailties. There's a kind of rich cultural, political, psychological, philosophical set of dimensions to this. I want to explore those because I want people to understand it. It's, you're not simply kind of standing on a soapbox and saying to everyone, think long-term. You're suggesting a kind of deep reflection and also that we can learn from the past and we can learn from other cultures. So I want to explore some of these concepts. So let's try one. Cathedral thinking. Tell us about the notion of cathedral thinking? Sure. So, you know, in this new book I've written called The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, I talk about six different ways of thinking long-term. And I kind of agree with you that there are a lot of these books which just bang away on one idea. But what I found looking at long-term thinking over the last three or four years of research is there's different forms of it. And one of them, as you mentioned there, is the idea of cathedral thinking, which is the idea of embarking on projects and thinking about projects with very long time horizons, sometimes decades, sometimes centuries. Of course, that concept is named in honor of those medieval cathedral builders who would embark on building their place of worship, knowing that it may never be finished within their own lifetime. So a classic example would be, you know, Alminster in southwest Germany, which was begun in the year 1377 when the good burghers of Ulm decided they wanted their own Lutheran church. They financed it themselves. Well, they didn't finish it for 500 years. It wasn't completed until 1890. That's an extraordinary long-term vision. And the phrase cathedral thinking has become more popular. People like you know, Greta Thunberg says we need cathedral thinking for dealing with the climate crisis. But we need to recognize that it actually comes in many different varieties. Of course, there are those examples, for example, like building religious buildings. But then there's also cathedral thinking in terms of public infrastructure projects. So you mentioned history, you know, in the 1850s, there was the great stink 
1858, when the stench coming off the Thames from sewage being dumped into it, when tens of thousand people would be dying from cholera, the stench was so great that even MPs couldn't breathe and they had to put masks over their faces, something we all know about now. And that triggered, that crisis triggered huge new investment and new powers being given to Sir Joseph Bazalgette to build the sewers of Victorian London. And that took nearly 18, 19 years, 318 million bricks, 22,000 workers. And those sewers are still in use today because he was a long-term thinker. And I mean, in a way, that's sort of sewer thinking rather than cathedral thinking, but that's another form of it. But then we also see it in the realm of social movements. The suffragettes are a good example. They started their first organization in 1867 in Manchester. They didn't achieve their aims for at least 50 years. So in many different realms, this cathedral thinking is going on. In fact, we're rather good at it, actually. We often think of ourselves as a very short-term, short-brained, instant reward-driven species. But actually, we also have what I think of as acorn brains, a capacity to think and plan for the long term. But what I would add about cathedral thinking, which is essential, is that it isn't always good for us. It can be directed to very narrow and self-interested ends. Just think, you know, Hitler called for a, an a thousand-year Reich or dictators today are cathedral thinkers who want to preserve their power and privilege through the generations. Just think of the North Korean family dynasty or in the corporate world. You know, some years ago, a former head of the investment bank, Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. Well, that's a kind of long-term thinking that I don't think is actually going to be beneficial for future generations or the broad sector of them in the long term. So cathedral thinking is something inspiring. We can do it, but let's also be careful. Well, then that takes me to a second concept, which is seven generations thinking, because I hear what you're saying. What you're saying is it's not just about long-termism, but it's long-termism also connected to a broad commitment you know to your fellow citizens to the earth to the group as a whole which of course then recalls some of your other work roman on empathy and this kind of seven generation thinking is not just about long-termism but it's also about the relationship between the individual and the group isn't it that's right so the idea of seventh generation thinking has become incredibly popular in the last couple of decades as a shorthand for long-term thinking and ecological stewardship in a way and its origins go back to the idea of intergenerational decision-making, particularly amongst Native American peoples, including in the Iroquois Confederacy. There's this idea, which is in practice today, of making decisions based on the impact seven generations from today. And it's found in Native American groups in South Dakota and elsewhere. Its first depiction or, or oranges, as far as I can see, written goes back to the 19th century, where there's US government commissions, where they talked about how the Native Americans have this seventh generation thinking idea. And even today, you've got people, or well, recently, and until her death, um, Eleanor Ostrom, the Nobel Prize winning economist, said, we need more cathedral thinking to deal with the challenges of our age, whether it's the ecological crisis or technological and other threats. And it really is about trying to extend our moral sphere through time. And if I think back to my own work, you mentioned my work on empathy, a lot of that stressed how we need to expand our moral boundaries across space. In other words, step into the shoes of people in developing countries or on the social margins in their own countries, try and see the world from their point of view. But certainly when I was focusing on that research, something I always struggled with was how then do we expand our moral vision, not across space, but through time? Because that's a lot harder to empathize with future generations, people you will never meet. You can't step into their shoes. You can't 
talk to them. And in a way, we need to draw on multiple ways of thinking to make that connection. I mean, utilitarian philosophers, for example, might say, look, there are 7.7 billion people alive today. And if you look back over the last 50,000 years, an estimated 100 billion people have been born. But if you go forward 50,000 years, assuming this century's birth rates level off and remain constant, an estimated 7 trillion people will be born. Now, that's more than almost a thousand times as many people have lived in all of human history in the last 50,000 years. They far outweigh everyone alive today. So surely we have an obligation to those future generations. And seventh generation thinking is one way of tapping into that. Of course, then there's a the question of, well, how do you put that idea into public policy? And there's some really fascinating examples around. So in Japan, there is a movement called Future Design which is a bit of a citizen's assembly form of movement about city planning. And they are directly inspired by the Iroquois seventh generation idea. And the way they work is that they invite local residents to make decisions about their local town or city. And they invite them along to these meetings, but they split them into two groups. The first group are told that they are citizens from the present, residents of the present. And the second group are told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. So not exactly seven generations away, but you know half a century away, roughly, or at least 40 years away. And they're given these ceremonial kimonos to wear to aid their imaginative journey in the future. And what multiple studies have found is that those residents who are told they're from 2060 systematically come up with much more radical policies when it comes to education and healthcare, investment in water infrastructure, environmental policy. And this future design methodology is spreading across local authorities in Japan. And I believe it's something that should be adopted by progressive cities and towns across the UK and other places as well. It's a really good way of turning the citizen assembly model towards long-term thinking. And there's some really good evidence from people like Graham Smith, who's an expert at the University of Westminster on citizen assemblies, showing that citizen assemblies and, and civic groups are much more inclined towards taking a long-term view than our short-term driven politicians. The book contains some great examples of cathedral thinking in practice, long-term thinking in practice. And some of them are really imaginative. You talk about the cultural icons for this idea, the 10,000-year clock, for example. So tell us a little bit about some of the kind of pioneers who've come up with really clever ways of getting us to think in this different kind of way. It's certainly not easy to get people to think long-term when we're busy looking at our phones and pressing the buy now button and responding to the latest text. But it's really interesting that in the cultural realm, particularly in the artistic realm, there have been a huge number of pioneering long-term projects. In a way, the cultural sphere is ahead of the political and economic sphere in terms of long-term thinking. In a way, this goes back to the 19th century when geologists discovered, in a way, the idea of deep time, the idea that the earth wasn't just 6,000 years old as the Bible told us, but was perhaps millions of years old, billions of years old as we now no, and even in the 1830s, you had artists starting to try and depict this sense of deep time. You know, for example, drawing pictures of what Lyme Regis Bay looked like millions of years ago when it was dominated by the dinosaurs rather than by the bathers of 19th century England. But today, we've got a very inspiring long-term projects in the cultural field. So, for example, as you mentioned, there's the 10,000-year clock, which is a slow time clock being built 
as we speak in a limestone mountain in the Texas desert. And this is a project of the Long Now Foundation, where I'm a research fellow, which is based in California. And the idea of the clock is really as a secular altarpiece for a long-term thinking civilization. And you'll be able to go along to this clock, which is designed to last for 10 millennia, hike there through the desert and then walk upstairs, cut into the mountainside. Each step represents a million years of geological time and go and visit that clock. And I think those kinds of projects are ways of shifting our imagination. But in another realm, the Scottish artist Katie Patterson has started a really interesting 100-year art project called the Future Library. It started in 2014. And the way it works is that every year for 100 years, a famous writer is depositing a book in the Future Library, a newly written book, which will remain completely unread in secret until the year 2114, when the 100 books will be printed on paper made from a thousand trees which have been planted in the forest outside Oslo. And the first person to deposit a book there was Margaret Atwood, Elif Shafak, many other well-known writers have deposited it. But if you think about what Margaret Atwood's doing there, you know, she's deposited a novel which nobody will read for 100 years. She will never meet the readers. She will never see it published in her own lifetime. And that's really about leaving a legacy gift to future generations. It taps into one of these other forms of long-term thinking that I write about, which is the idea of developing a transcendent legacy mindset, leaving a gift for future generations beyond the ego boundary of our own deaths. That takes me to exactly what I wanted to explore with you next, Roman, which is, okay, so far, so good. You know, this is a lot to emulate. Brilliant artists, generous people, great architects, great thinkers. But, you know, for the ordinary folks, I mean, obviously this podcast will be being listened to in a thousand years as a great artifact of the 21st century. <laughs> but apart from that, having read your book, if I wanted to be a better ancestor, what are the kind of practical things that I could do that would start to cement that idea? Because we know from psychology that you don't really change just by having an aspiration. You need to embed it in habit. So tell us about some of the habits that we might adopt if we wanted to be good ancestors. Actually, the first one came to mind is something that my partner and I did towards the end of last year. If you can send your mind back to before COVID-19, at the time of the last UK general election, we decided to give our 11-year-old twins an unusual birthday present. We decided to give them our votes for the general election at that time. So we all sat around the kitchen table, debated the party manifestos, even explained to them the electoral system, which wasn't easy. And then they told us where to put the X on the ballot sheet. And well, actually, in case you're wondering, they didn't exactly copy their parents' political opinions. But there, of course, is one example of, I'd love to see a movement emerge where grandparents gave their votes to their grandchildren. But that's about developing a different habit around politics, trying to recognize the limits of our system and thinking about what we can do about them. That's one everyday thing. You know, engage our children in politics, even give them our votes. But I think in more personal life, there are ways of getting in touch with the long term. I mean, again, just thinking of my own children, I'm thinking back to Lyme Regis, which I mentioned earlier in Dorset. Every year we go there and go hunting for fossils. Well, if you're holding a 195 million-year-old belemite fossil or ammonite in your hand, you're getting in touch a bit with a longer time span. And that's essential for social and political change because what we need to recognize is that here we are, human beings, only being around for a blink of an eye in terms of cosmic time, a couple of hundred thousand years in billions of years of life on Earth and possibly, hopefully, billions of years to come. Yet in this short period of two centuries, we have wrought untold damage 
to the living world. And who are we to, in a way, break that chain of life with our deadly technologies and our ecological blindness? So I think we can try and get in touch with things like deep time in those personal ways. But also, I think we need to recognize that only collective change is really going to bring the change that we need in these areas. If we're really serious about long-term thinking and shifting our political systems and our economic systems towards a longer sense of now, we need to recognize that those systems were developed in the 18th and 19th century, even beforehand. And to try and rethink them and recalibrate them is an enormous task. And that requires big social movements. And there's an urgency in a way, there's a sort of a paradox here because we need long-term thinking right now. There's a fierce urgency of the now, as Martin Luther King put it. Now, what might those movements look like? I mean, some of those movements of what I think of as time rebels, people who are thinking long-term, implicitly or explicitly are already around. The student climate strike movement, of course, is one of them. But there are also movements for, for example, establishing legal rights for future generations. In the US, there's a court case going on at multiple levels at the moment called Our Children's Trust, where a group of young people are taking the US government to court, federal and state level, for violating the rights of current and future generations to a clean and healthy atmosphere. I think that's the kind of movement we could be supporting. I mean, they're probably going to lose, but I think there are going to be many more of these intergenerational justice and rights struggles going on. I mean, here in the UK, there is a campaign going on right now called Today for Tomorrow, and this is to establish a future generations commissioner for the whole of the UK, modelled on what they have in Wales, where they have a future generations commissioner. Her name's Sophie Howe. She doesn't have a lot of power. She has more name and shame powers, really. And her role is to try and scrutinise public policy for its impact on people 30 years from today. I'm certainly a big supporter of the idea of the UK having a whole future generations commissioner, one with a bit more power, a bit more teeth. But I think in practical terms, in everyday life, we need to be supporting those kinds of movements, as well as getting engaged in everyday actions like putting solar panels on our roofs or cutting down our flying and our personal carbon emissions, which all have potential amplification effects and which are certainly central to creating a longer now in theory and practice. I want to open a different kind of angle on this, Rome, which is a, a book that was very influential to me many years ago. It was a book by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death. In the book, Becker argues that death and our awareness of death is the single most important thing about human beings that we are really the only species that is kind of fully aware of our own mortality. Other animals have kind of, some animals like elephants have rituals, but there's not a kind of cultural awareness of death. And he argues from a kind of quasi-Freudian perspective that our whole life, the whole life force we have is to do with coping with, often dysfunctionally coping with the, the truth of our mortality. I'm interested in whether you think that long-term thinking, being a good ancestor, these ideas, can they help us come to terms with death? And if Becker is right, that in some ways certain forms of manic behaviour are driven by our awareness of death, our fear of death, our unwillingness to face up to death, that this could help us to lead more balanced lives in the here and now. Yeah, I too actually been really influenced by Becker. And the last book I wrote, Carpe Diem Regained, in a way was an attempt to explore some of the ways that death can inspire us or change our direction in life or give us a bit of existential sustenance. But I think death is absolutely central to how we think about the long term. I mean, one of the great things about human beings is that we die in relation to 
long-term thinking that is because you know there's a lot of psychology research showing that basically when human beings tend to reach some midlife point somewhere between 35 and 55 they start thinking about how to keep the fire of their own lives burning beyond death they want to transcend it they want to leave a legacy the problem is that we tend to express our legacies in very different ways and i think of it in three different ways one is that some people try to express their legacy in an egotistical way. So they want to glorify themselves in the same way that Alexander the Great wanted statues of himself put all over his empire, or a Russian oligarch wants a wing of the National Gallery named after them. And that's the way that they're going to survive death. I think a second way we think about death is the idea of a familial legacy. And anyone with kids will feel that very strongly, that wanting to leave something to your children or grandchildren, whether that's family property or pass on traditions or languages or religion. But I think if we're going to be good ancestors, go back to Jonas Salk's point, we need to have a transcendent sense of legacy. In other words, that's about leaving a legacy for the universal strangers of the future. You know, Richard Titmus wrote about in his book, The Gift Relationship, about the universal strangers donating blood to them. I think we need to think about the universal strangers of the future. But how do we make a connection with them? That's incredibly difficult, particularly because we live in highly individualized, individualistic societies where we are clicking that buy now button, looking after number one. We're not parts of those uh, traditions like the Native American tradition with ideas of seventh generation thinking. How do we make that connection? I mean, I think we can explore some of those different cultural approaches. In Maori culture, for example, there's the concept known as whakapapa, spelt with a WH, they pronounce WHF. And whakapapa is their word for genealogy or lineage. And it's the idea that we are all part of a great chain of life that connects the, the past and the present and the future. And I remember going to this really fantastic talk by a Maori legal rights activist called Julia Faibuti, and she works with children's rights. And as she was talking, she said, you know, here in the room, I feel the living and the dead and the unborn with me. And that's a real kind of Maori sort of idea of a liquid sense of time where the dead and the unborn are all here together. And I think that is one of these ways that we start transcending death and the fear of death to go back to Becca. You know, in an existential sense, if we think that we are leaving a legacy that goes beyond our death, something for a bigger world for those universal strangers of the future. Well, that's a way of keeping ourselves alive so that we don't end up doing, you know, what Becker and other people in that sphere of death studies say, well, we end up wanting to distract ourselves by buying fancy watches and getting suntans and going on holidays and buying faster cars. Consumerism, as they argue, is one of our ways to distract ourselves from death. Well, let us actually embrace it, approach it, but not in that egotistical legacy way and not only in a familial legacy way, we need to make that jump to something more transcendent. Roman, that's brilliant. And had we more time, I think another topic I'd love to discuss with you, maybe at some other time, is the relationship between these ideas and ageism in society. Because it feels to me, as long as we see death as defeat, we will view ageing as decline. And so I think one of the other characteristics of some of the cultures you're talking about is a very different and much more positive attitude about age and wisdom. But we don't have time to go into that. <laughs> Unfortunately not. If you're as excited by Roman's ideas as I am, then I strongly recommend that you go out and get his book, which I have to say, not only is it fascinating, but the end of the book, I just felt calmer. 
I felt better about myself and the world. And that's an unusual byproduct of reading a book. Apart from your book, though, Roman, if people, having listened to this book, want to do one thing, to get involved in one campaign or one initiative, which is around the thinking that you've described, what would you recommend them to do? I think on the very personal level, I would go and visit an ancient tree and make a habit of that. That's how to get in touch with deep time. A yew tree that's over a thousand years old, an ancient oak. On a political level, I would say, think about how to join campaigns of time rebels for long-term thinking. That might be something like the Today for Tomorrow campaign for UK Future Generations Commissioner. It might be legal movements for the rights of future generations, because I believe we are moving into an age where intergenerational justice will be one of the great issues of our time. Roman Krasnarek, thank you so much for sharing your big idea. Thank you, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.